Hello friends, and welcome to the Healing Ground Movement. Now for more content and bonus features, you can join us on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, all of our content is delivered freely. So please consider supporting the show by donating via the link on our website at healinggroundmovement.com or liking and reviewing the podcast on your favorite platform. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox partners with people who are dedicated to doing the right thing, never cutting corners and always looking for ways to improve. Discover why they're the trusted source of high quality protein for families across the country. At ButcherBox, they believe in better. For them, that means caring about their animals and the planet, treating our planet with respect. It means improving the lives of animals and the livelihoods of farmers. And ultimately, it means better meals enjoyed together. The protein from ButcherBox is never given antibiotics or added hormones. It's humanely raised. Our family loves the convenience and quality and knowing that we are getting humanely raised and sustainably harvest protein. You can customize your box with the right amount of food and variety of meat to fit your family's individual needs. If you're interested in getting a special offer, go ahead and head to healinggroundmovement.com resources to follow the link for ButcherBox. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Healing Ground Movement Podcast. Today, we have Leisha Skye joining us from Boston. She is a Boston-based embodied awareness facilitator, artist, singer, songwriter, and body worker who works with traumatized individuals and trains mental health professionals to use mindful meditation and movement, theater exercises, writing, and voice as tools for attunement, healing, and connection. She is also the co-founder and CEO of the Trauma Research Foundation, and she is here to join us today and to talk a lot about, again, this idea of embodiment, where our attention and our emotions can go and how that is impacted by trauma, whether we we have the big T or little T or any kind of thing that shows up in our life, it, it affects how we show up in life. So with no further ado, Lucia, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So... so- you have quite the list of uh, specialties and experience, and I am just always so curious to know how you arrived at the work, the work that you do. Very organically, mm-hmm. um, I would say that there, there is not a linear path to what I've done, or, or I didn't have a linear path to what I've done. I've just followed the things that I've loved. Mm-hmm. Um, Body work is something that I, you know, I guess when I was a a teenager, I started trading back rubs with friends. That was a thing back in the 70s. But I I found that I was really good at it. I had a a natural connection to touch. Um, Touch was part of my Japanese culture. Um, I learned to massage my mom's shoulders. We massaged each other's feet when I was a child. Um, So touch was a very natural part of my growing up experience. Mm -hmm. And um, when I, when I went into it professionally, yeah, it, it, it felt like a natural extension of my yoga practice. Um, I, I felt very in tune with the people that I was working with. Um, I also have a theater background. I've been in theater since I was a young child and have gone all the way through professional actors training with a Shakespeare and company <laughs> trainer, actors training program. The, see, body work and theater don't necessarily go together, but they do fit. Lots of people in the theater world are, are consumers of body work. Um, so, and I, I began I, singing. I <laughs> singing since I was a young kid, even though I was told to mouth the words when I first joined a choir in, in elementary school. Um, so these, these are natural parts of who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And I have been able to practice them and share them in such a way that they, they've become synthesized into what is a practice for me. I love that. I love the organic creation of, um, you know, things that, that light us up, fill us up are, mm. are part of our, you know, often humble beginnings and, you know, rubbing our, our parents' shoulders and things of that nature that 
it can turn into a passion and it can turn into this really uniquely synthesized offering, um, you know, that is, that is beautiful for both you as the provider and those who receive it. Um, I'm curious to hear more from you because I, I agree. It, it doesn't seem like a natural connection between theater and body work, but both of them require such embodiment and such awareness. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more to that, um, to that connection that you found in your work. Well, you know, it's interesting. Some of these things may have remained separate in my life, compartmentalized, but I've been working with Bessel for almost 10 years now. And um, he was really the one who said, oh, you've got to do this. You've got to teach this. You've got to connect these things that I had originally seen as disparate. So I, I really, I give him a, a lot of credit for encouraging me to share what I know mm -hmm. in different ways. Um, but the, the vocalizing and body work is something that I really came to on my own. Um, when I went to bodywork school, we were really admonished, you are not a therapist. <laughs> you should not talk to people. You are not qualified to process people's stuff emotionally. Um, but what they really didn't tell you is how much stuff comes up emotionally for people. Mm -hmm. Touch opens people up, brings them into a full awareness of what their body is telling them about their internal state, about what they're holding. I mean, that's what really good body work does. Yeah. It brings you into a present relationship with yourself and the body worker. So the body worker becomes a container for you coming into awareness of yourself. Um, and it's a very, very important place to be as present as possible, emotionally aware of yourself as a body worker, mm -hmm. of yourself in relation to this person who is opening up to themselves. So there's a way that as a body worker, you have to embody and model that presence that mm -hmm. you're inviting somebody else to come into with as much safety as possible. Um, and what I found is that, you know, some people have holding patterns, patterns of tension, and they don't know why those patterns are there. Oh, I've got an ache in my shoulder. It's always there. It always comes up at the end of the day when I'm really stressed. That holding pattern might be a way that you are suppressing the expression of an emotion that you're having. It might be a way that you are containing a sound in your body. It takes a lot of energy to contain sounds. And the most natural physical sounds that we make that are hard to suppress are a cry or a laugh or a yawn or a gasp of surprise. All those things take a lot of physical energy, muscular tension in order to stop a sneeze if you've ever tried to stop a <laughs> sneeze or stop a laugh if you've ever tried to stop a laugh. It, it, it's so spontaneous and people who've traumatized, been traumatized, especially as children, may have to learn in order to survive how to be quiet, how to not cry, how to not laugh how to not display any external expression of internal discomfort. You know, we, we often learn how to become very small in order to be safe. Yeah. And one of the biggest ways that we learn how to be small is with our voices, with our sounds. And I found working with people's bodies that very often... It wasn't enough to make contact with a tight muscle or knead it or stretch it. It wasn't enough to breathe with somebody that they actually needed to make a sound in order to release whatever holding pattern they had inside. And I began to make sounds with people because I sing, mm -hmm. because I've learned to move through my vocal shame and, and perform publicly and be comfortable being seen and being heard, I could make a sound comfortably that I thought 
the person needed to make in order to let go of that tension in their neck. It might have mm -hmm. been a, ah, or it might have been a, ah. but there, there's something to making those sounds. I imagine you get a little resonance in your own body and your mm -hmm. own nervous system when you hear those sounds. Those mm -hmm. sounds, when they're released from a person who's making them, you actually have to let go of the holding inside that keeps you mm -hmm. from making those sounds. And quite often what I found is that there was a, a powerful emotional release that happened with making those sounds. So I would make those sounds. They would make the sound inside my sound. They might not necessarily even hear themselves, but profound changes could happen in that way. And it was a, another layer of safety and release that I discovered I could provide for people. That's, so a, that's, that's a small thing. Yeah. But, and I think what we start to begin to understand over the years of, of working in healing modalities or even being the recipient of healing modalities is that it is the accumulation of these small things. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that, you know, over my 30 some odd years of um, receiving or giving, there have been these huge cataclysmic, incredible release moments yeah, but those, yeah. you know, those you count on one hand compared mm. to what the opportunity of um, the number of times there's the spontaneous laughter or the sigh or the crying or the groan. These are those small opportunities of opening. Yeah, And, you know, I've never heard it discussed uh, so, so beautifully, so succinctly because they are so commonplace that, you know, I think everybody listening, if they've had a massage or received chiropractic care, or even gone through a yoga class, they know at some point there is that, <sighs> or peace. And, and there can be, there mm -hmm. can be. And there's some people who are silent, perfectly silent the mm -hmm. whole time and never do any vocal releasing. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to the level of safety of the session mm -hmm. because when you feel safe, you can sigh, mm -hmm. you can make those sounds. And sometimes, sometimes the first session when a person is that silent, I, I'm just waiting to see what they're going to do. And it might be in a subsequent session. I will say, let, would it be all right if we tried making a sound together? Mm -hmm. so, to help release this and it's it's all exploration it's all a dialogue it's it's a conversation yeah yeah and i i like um that idea of it being an exploration of it being um curiosity you know not this perspective prescriptive do this and that but right, right, right. where where will this take you where are you curious where are you safe and where can we go together? Where do you need to right. go alone? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and you may find things that become familiar, comforting elements that you always want to have. Mm -hmm. But no two sessions are ever exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You're never the same person when you walk through the door. And so the chemistry is always a, a little different. Mm -hmm. But how do you um, meet that as openly as you can? as safely as you can. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, and I, yeah, such a bringing that vocal work into working through and uh, like um, your term vocal shame. I, I have my, my fair share of that. I was, I was told to revisit my priorities in my interest of being in choir. Um, oh, gee. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, to be fair, I, I had nerve damage where I have no control over my palate for a while. Um, but to, to hear that and to understand that element of silencing mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, how we sing, how we express ourselves, how we vibrate, um, it, it, it impacts us. It, it resonates on a very cellular level. There is so much known now about frequency of music mm. and if it is meditative or excitatory uh, or anything in between. And it historically has been such a cultural expression to sing, to talk, to dance, to move in a collective. Right. Um, you know, there is an impact of yes, but not you, everybody else, but not you, you sh sh mouth the words. <laughs> right. And that's, 
that's outside of what we consider a traumatizing context. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how many kids have been hit and told not to cry? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and and having a voice when you make a sound, you're putting a sound out that draws attention and focus to you. Mm-hmm. And and for so many people, it hasn't been safe to be seen. To have all eyes on you, to have the room turn and look at you, or there, there's a level of vulnerability there, especially if you don't have an internal confidence, if you don't have a sense of yourself mm-hmm. being seen. Is is can be a scary moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and and then with music also, there's this. Um, way that you can come into sync that you can belong when you're singing together when you're communing that you know vibration moves through solids most strongly so Mm -hmm. a a big truck can drive by and it can rattle the windows of your house Mm -hmm. you can feel that rumble through the walls and it's not something that you can touch in the air but you can feel the ground shake beneath your feet um, I work with tuning forks in sessions and in workshops to let people know how far into their bodies vibration goes. Mm. And I do that as a demonstration of sound to let them know that even though we think that we're putting a sound into the airwaves, we're actually physically experiencing the vibrations of our own voices and the voices of the people that we hear around us. We physically experience the vibration of music. We don't just hear it in our ears. Um, And that our emotional states, our states of calmness, our tension, are also delivered vibrationally into the people around us and to ourselves. So we affect ourselves by our voices and each other by our voices. So a body worker's contact is not just in their hands their contact is in their eyes mm-hmm. contact is in their voice yeah and yeah. that presence and yeah. do you find and i um that you know, when we're demonst- when you're demonstrating with the tuning fork that depth and that resonance of that sound do people have different perceptions of depth depending on how they're holding and expressing trauma or stress within their body Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing about trauma, especially there's this way that, that the people who have the most distress have to work the hardest to cut off those feelings of distress, or they will have no attention available to be in the world at all. Mm -hmm. So you can have very highly functioning people who live from the neck up who don't know what they're feeling really, who say, oh, I'm not upset. I'm not there. Those are the people who are working hardest to not feel. Um, There's a term called alexithymia. Alexithymia is where a person is a state where a person is not aware of the physical sensations of emotion Mm. at all. So they don't know that they're feeling heartache. They don't know that their body is full of tension and rage. They don't know deep sadness or grief overtly. They don't know what physical motive physically is motivating them and maybe coloring their thoughts. They don't know. Mm -hmm. And so those people can be reactive without understanding why they're reactive. Oh, what just came over me instead of knowing what's Mm. been with them all along. And the process, especially if it's a childhood trauma and you have a lifetime of practicing, not acknowledging feelings because it's not safe or because you can't function if you do and it's not socially acceptable or safe to cry or be angry or be sad or whatever you're feeling, not even joy. Mm -hmm. There's this way that your whole level of living is compartmentalized, tamped down. Um, The other thing is that for many people, 
trauma isn't just trauma. There's this whole level of shame about vulnerability mm-hmm. and shame, shame about having been hurt, shame about being affected by being hurt. You know, and so there's this way that, especially if you are growing up with trauma as the normal and you're trying to be as normal as possible on the outside, then what you're looking for is where's my vulnerability? Mm-hmm. Where's my shame that I have to avoid? And the world can become very small. The threats that you're looking for all the time are mostly going to be what you see. Mm-hmm. So you lose out on opportunity opportunity to be fully engaged in a joyful, meaningful way in the world, which is what we want. Mm-hmm. And so, so as we're in this idea of alexithymia and in this compression and, and um, compartmentalization mm-hmm. where we're not in touch with what we're feeling in our physical body and we have, you know, this idea of, of using sound and using resonance to, um, in, in a sense, become aware of, of ourselves and, and our depths of openness, I would you know, hazard to say. What, what does, you know, tools like the tuning fork or tools like that sound release um, do to shift that depth, to shift that awareness um, within ourselves? You know, there are many people who, I would say that I start, especially in workshops, I start with stillness and you know body scan as extensively and carefully as I can where I'm asking questions not just about how do your toes feel but um, how do your toes feel in relation to your ankles or how does the base of your spine what direction does the base of your spine point compared to your belly button or your shoulders or your chin what are your habits of holding yourself posturally can you feel yourself breathing? How is your breathing affected by how you're sitting? What does the inside of your body feel like as it expands when you inhale? What does the outside of your body feel like? Can you tell how large or small you feel in relation to the space? So there, there's this way of beginning to listen, listen for cues of internal sensations, cues of external sensations. And it it can feel, sometimes people can say, why are you doing this? And they can be really, they can become agitated and nervous because being in stillness and having that much awareness, you're coming to the edges of sensation of feeling and all these things that you've worked on to not feel, whether you know that you've worked on it, worked on not feeling it or not. It, it's a practice. It's a discipline, survival practice to not feel. Mm-hmm. So to come into awareness of, of feelings can be scary. Yeah. And then I invite people to do what I call self-contact. So that would be a hand on your chest, on your heart, noticing what your hand feels. Do you feel your clothing, the texture of your clothing? Can you feel layers of clothing? Can you feel the sense of contact with your skin or your muscle or your bone underneath that? What's it like to place a hand on your belly? So very scaffolded. And I I just gave you a very quick talk, Mm -hmm. but what I just gave you in two minutes might take an hour and a half to get through. Um, And so acclimating people slowly to what embodied awareness is, expanded Mm -hmm. awareness is, and beginning to notice where are my habits of attention? What am I orienting to in the space around me? What are my habits of attention around my own body? What am I used to noticing or what do I never pay attention to? And breath can be a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, But for so many people, this is new, even if they think they've had a meditation practice, even if they think that they know how to do it, it's never the same twice. Mm -hmm. And there's always a deeper place you can go with all of these practices. And they're practices. They're not Mm -hmm. one-offs where you go, oh, I did that once. Now I'm all fine. I'm better now. All good. All good. (laughs) All good. Yeah. 
Well, because when we think about, you know, all the years that we have intentionally or unintentionally practiced holding patterns, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we are trying to suppress crying out and tears or, or laughter or our voice or all of those, you know, we, we can talk about different systems, energetic system, chakra system, body posturing. I mean, it's, it's discussed in so many modalities across centuries, across yeah. generations yeah. And, and studied profusely now, but we practice these patterns mm. and hold And so it stands to reason that we have to put as much practice and intention into releasing them, into befriending and finding safety within a new expression. Right. And I also want to say that, you know, catharsis isn't necessarily the end goal. Oh, I had a good cry and now it's all over. It really, it has to do with presence and acceptance and finding new ways of being it's you know it's not it's not oh I'm going to do this one thing Mm -hmm. and it's just going to stay right there my my half hour of meditation every morning and um and how do I say it presence being able to be present with discomfort with uncertainty with the big intense emotion and with pleasure and safety in enjoying things because very often safety doesn't feel safe mm-hmm. that letting go just feels vulnerable feels like oh this is an op- another opportunity where i'll get shamed i'm 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 not going to get tricked i it for many people it's not even safe to know what they want Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, I do think it's really important to be present with deep sadness, with grief, with anger. And it's very important to own those within yourself with as much safety as you can. Mm-hmm. But it's also important to know the other side of vulnerability, the strength in vulnerability, the strength in being comfortable with uncertainty um, and openness. I mean, that's really where love happens. Yeah. 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 I love just uh, highlighting that it's not about the cathartic moment. And that sort of speaks back to something we discussed just a few moments earlier, which is, you know, we love we love the stories of big transformation, the the cathartic thing that happens on the table. They they come with a lot of color and expression, but that is not in and of itself the work. That's not the practice. That's that's a large release, but it is not the end all be all. And you yet know? there are many people who are afraid of that kind of release, mm-hmm. not just the people who are experiencing it themselves, but the therapist that they're working with or the body worker that they're with that mm-hmm. wants to shush it down. And, yeah. and, you know, when we talk about emotional regulation, I, I think that there are some therapists who, who are more into the regulation as a shutdown than a regulation is being part of the process of being present. And it's, yeah. that's a delicate, delicate place to go. And, mm-hmm. I think for myself, um, I've, I've likened the, the metaphor of the midwife, I think is very relevant for people who are working with people with feelings, because when you're uh, a mother in labor, there are a lot of intense feelings, a lot of intense physical feelings, as well as emotional feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, if you can't be noisy when you're having labor, I don't know when you can be noisy, mm-hmm. but it just seems like um, the midwife that I, I had two home births and I, I had a midwife who was very comfortable with my discomfort, with my fear, mm-hmm. with my distress in my contractions, who let me know that what I was going through was completely normal and welcome. And it was 
people with big feelings that they've been holding back for a long time, that they can feel like, oh, if I start crying, it's never going to stop. And, um, oh, or I can't have too big a feeling. That means that I've lost my lid. I'm out of control. And I don't necessarily think that's always the case. I think mm -hmm. that sometimes you're having a big feeling and a big release and you're not out of control you're being very present with a very deep pain and that's a different thing yeah i love that analogy and i think um you know it speaks well to to this idea that we have sort of um confabulated we've um created intense experience and put them in this container that is always not always but often considered negative bad mm. in some way painful scary right, and right. and the idea of labor like that i i yeah. um, in giving birth too i will say and i'll say to my patients often because i don't think we hear this enough that it was not the most painful thing i've ever experienced it was unmedicated and you know yeah, yeah, all, yeah. all that but it's not the most painful thing i've ever experienced but it was the most intense thing uh. mm probably top three at this point, but one of the most intense things I've ever experienced. Yeah. And to let those be two different pieces because right, right, the right. fear and the restriction and the holding back from vocal expression or the movement that you need to go through um, or riding the contractions, yeah, yeah, yeah. that creates the pain, that creates fear, that creates trauma where the intensity in and of itself is in effect a little neutral. It's a little... And it's an expression of what is without right, a label. Right, right. And, you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing in being present with somebody who's having a very intense experience um, is to stay with them, mm -hmm. to really let them know that you're there with them as they're having this intense experience, that you're, they're not alone. And sometimes that's a big thing to remind a person of because it can feel like they're going into a void. Mm -hmm. um, but I have generally found that there is a physical duration for how long somebody can have an intense cry for, and it's surprisingly not as long as you would think. Mm -hmm. um, and and that present, that check-in, as long as you're staying present, knowing that that feeling is there and that it's from the past and you're being present with something from the past and tracking your physical sensations. I, so far, and maybe I, it, there, there may be other people who, who know differently, but my experiences have been that people are able to come back and mm -hmm. feel like they've done a really big piece of work mm -hmm. for, and been able to be courageous about facing something that they haven't been able to face. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it leaves a more spacious interior where other things can happen. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. That's beautiful. And, and yeah, there's, you know, you hear people say there's nothing like a good cry, man, there's nothing like a good cry, but that, that being in that present feeling through shifting through moving out, moving through all that intensity. And, and you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't last forever as it feels in the moment. It becomes timeless in the moment, but in the reality, it's, it's not a drawn out experience. And I think what you mentioned just a moment ago about being present with something, with somebody it's a gift that, you know, anyone can give to any loved one or any provider can give within a, in a setting, but, you know, parents to their children, partners to each other, we, we can hold that space and, and offer that gift of safe container in place of, oh, honey, don't cry. Don't cry. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's a different yeah. kind of courage. Well, that kind of an emotional containment mm -hmm. is a practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like the idea of boundaries around it. Mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of, okay, we have a space and a time where we're devoting to this. And 
for me, the work of that kind of deep work is that it's allowing you to know that it's not all of you, mm-hmm. but it's something that you've been carrying, a part of you that you've been carrying inside that's, um, I'll bring in IFS language, that it's a burden. Mm-hmm. You're unburdening. Um, it's not always appropriate for somebody who you're in a family relationship with to do that kind of caring. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what, just to yeah. jump in and clarify, and yeah. thinking less about, um, you know, the, the long-term trauma burden of a space, yeah, yeah. but, you know, when, when we all go throughout our days and, and as right, we right. practice um, being present with those emotions that we, we come across hard things in the present moment. Absolutely. Present absolutely. Time. Yeah. And so that's more what I'm speaking to is that, you know, if we could give each other the gift of, you know, I'm home, this hit the fan today and yeah. I'm about yeah. to lose it. Okay. Lose oh, yeah. it. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, instead yeah, of taking absolutely. that away and reinviting that, um, that need for silence. Yeah, and 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 there's a huge cultural socialization piece. Mm-hmm. There are people that I love dearly who probably would never be able to do that mm-hmm. with, with a peer, yeah, or the family member. But on the other hand, we had our grandkids with us for a month this summer, and you know they're three and five, and it and there were days when it felt like every other minute one of them was in a siren wail and the siren wail would last for like 30 seconds of intense sobbing. And then, Oh, I'm better and running off to play. (laughs) Um, And, and the thing about that is that that's how loose and healthy we can be with our feelings. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that it's part of socialization that you learn not to do that, or you learn when you can do it and when you can't do it. You know, what's appropriate for a three-year-old to do is not appropriate for a a 30-year-old. But, and being able to have that moment of shedding something that you've been carrying is, Mm -hmm. is huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to release it in the moment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in some way, in some way, you know, giving, giving yourself that gift. Yeah. Um, it's powerful. It is. Um, Amazing. Well, I I do want to kind of circle all the way back to the beginning of our conversation because you were mentioning um, about theater and movement and you threw out this name that Bessel helped you with that. And I think our listeners probably don't know that they've actually heard a lot about this Bessel before. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about the theater and movement component and your work um, with uh, Bessel van uh, van der Kolk? Van der Kolk, yeah. So Bessel wrote The Body Keeps the Score Mm -hmm. and... um, he and I have been teaching and working together for about a decade now. And um, we started the Trauma Research Foundation together. And um, we do theater and psychodrama workshops together. Um, and I, so I, I belonged to a theater company when I first moved to Boston. I dabbled in psychodrama a little bit, but really through working with him uh, you know and I, I he was teaching workshops at Asselin and Kripalu and he invited me to do the movement elements of it to get people dancing and meditating and in touch with their bodies and um, when the body keeps the score was finished we went and did the professional actors training program at Shakespeare and Company and for six days a week from about eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, we did movement, theater movement and vocalizing exercises and clowning and <laughs> learning how to do theatrical fighting and um, speaking our lines from an emotional reality. And I, I really took all those exercises to heart and brought them into all of the experiential workshops that we do. And what we found is that people land differently with each other very quickly as a group. It's able to, we're allowed to 
give people physical experiences of awareness that help them to know what they're feeling in their body and be present in a way that allows them to see each other with more clarity, read social cues that they might have been avoidant to look at, Mm. to notice their breathing patterns when they're making eye contact. There's a, a scaffolding from stillness and tracking in meditation to movement in meditation to interaction in meditation. And it makes for a very quick, cohesive group of people who are open to themselves, open to what's underneath the surface in a way that they're also suddenly very interested in maintaining the safety of a very open group. And it it makes very deep work possible. Um, What else would I say? I... On top of those theatrical exercises, I've also brought in elements of touch and contact, first with self, mm-hmm. and then a vocabulary of energy awareness and a vocabulary of safe touch in different steps of knuckle to knuckle, palm to palm, um, shoulder to shoulder, uh, hand in the middle of the back, or hand on top of a hand that's on a heart. Um, mm-hmm. and they're, they're very slow motion. They're immer- very much about listening and it's all with permission. It's, it's all with invitation, not ordering. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very patient, slow process. And when you talked about that scaffolding of, you know, quiet meditation, movement meditation to interactive meditation, mm-hmm. is it is it that kind of slow, intentional, permissive interaction that is that interactive meditation, or is that a different element? It's it, you know, with all of this, there has to be a level of self responsibility and self care, where I'm listening to myself and I'm noticing, oh. I'm being asked to do something that feels like it's going to be challenging. And in this moment right now, I have to ask myself, is this a challenge that I'm willing to try? Is this a challenge that I'm willing to stay present in the room and observe other people going through it and then evaluate if I'd like to try it after that? Or does this sound like it's going to be great and I'm all in? Or does it sound like it's going to be great and I'm all in and I realize, oh, something is way out of my comfort zone suddenly and I need to pause and take care of myself and step back. And how do I stay present through Mm -hmm. all of this? So that is everyone's responsibility. But with each, each exercise that I'm inviting people to try, it's always presented as an invitation. I invite you to notice what it feels like to have your feet make contact with the floor. Now I invite you to notice where's your weight falling. I invite you to notice. And it's, it's really invitation every step of the way Mm -hmm. Um, and suggestion. And it's also going very slowly. It's going so slowly that it's almost like falling into a trance state together. It's a semi dream state where things are going so slowly and so much is happening that we don't usually pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so little is happening at the same time. Yeah. And changing those habits of attention. I mean, when you were speaking at the beginning of our conversation about when, when one goes into that trauma state Mm -hmm. and you know, this, this is dangerous, that's dangerous. I have to control this. I need to be aware of that. I need to contain this part of myself that immense slowdown and broadening of a lens feels like a really beautiful invitation to change our relational attitude to our, ourselves interiorly, ourselves immediately to the environment, and then the environment that is in close proximity. Right, and, right. Steps. I, but I would say for people who have a lot of trauma in their lives, especially childhood trauma, it's not a matter of going into that state that is their default state mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um but yeah the the idea of being able to 
notice and have an opportunity to choose differently. You can't choose differently if you don't know what your options are. Mm -hmm. And and slowing things down. And oh, I have a habit of focusing on these things, or oh, I have a habit of doing my best to ignore and shut out the things that irritate me like my socks on the floor or those papers that are on a stack that I haven't gotten to for weeks. Those are attentional habits that we have that, um, that, that affect how we live. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Marie Kondo, you wouldn't necessarily think of her as, as a trauma specialist, (laughs) But what she's doing is she's having people pay attention to their environment differently and notice what they value and what what brings them joy. Those are all things that many people do not internally have permission to do, have never dared to because, gosh, it would be exhausting to pay attention to all those things, exhausting to notice all those details. And yet what, what happens to your life, what changes when you make those changes it's not just a stack of paper on your table it's there's a level of self-care that's happening Mm -hmm. yeah and a level of perhaps tension that you didn't know you're holding in your body around the things that you're avoiding or the things that you're attuning to that have to do with danger instead of life Mm -hmm. and it's uh it does sound like it's a lot of of where we are are in the habit of, or in the default mode of placing our energy yeah, and maybe not being aware that sometimes those protective measures, um, those holding patterns take more effort than letting go. But that effort of, of moving into a new awareness of learning a new habit of attention that, that requires a great deal of effort and vulnerability in and of itself. It, it does. And, um, what was I going to say? The energy that it takes to not not live optimally, to mm-hmm. only be focused on danger, that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really exhausting. Um, yeah, and you don't know yeah. it's exhausting until you've stopped doing it for a moment. It seems sometimes right. for me, sometimes it feels that way. Um, yeah. yeah, but what it, what a gift to to have all of these different modalities, all of these gentle invitations to um, attune your life differently, attune your attention differently. And and when your attention is attuned differently, you have more resources at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had some people send me lovely writing after workshops uh, over the years. And one that was really spectacular to me was a person who had just a tremendous, there's so many people with tremendous trauma histories, Mm. wrote and said, as I was leaving the workshop today, I heard birds singing, beautiful birds singing, and I hadn't heard birds sing in such a long time. It startled me. I was so surprised or the colors were more vivid. I've been listening to music and music sounds different now. Um, there, I think that, that we have these filters on that tell us what's happening in the world, what we can let in, what we can't let in. And, and a lot of times those filters really dim our reality. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't live as fully as we could live, as vividly as we could live. You know, I like Technicolor. Yeah. <laughs> Just turning up the light, turning up the brightness, removing yeah. removing that emotional cataract, if you will. I, right. It changes, it changes the world. It changes right. your world. Right. And it changes who you can be for yourself and who you can be for other people. Amazing. Yeah. Alicia, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and experience for bringing um, such vivid color to the opportunity and understanding of, of what 
what these trauma patterns are and can be and can limit us from um, in, in a scope broader than I, I will admit for myself. And I'm, I'm wondering if our listeners feel the same in a scope broader than I ever really understood. I mean, even to oh. that resonance of sound. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if for any listener who would love to learn more about your work um, and the Trauma Research Foundation, um, where where can they find you, and what resources do you do you have to offer? Um, you know, since COVID, we have not really been doing very many live workshops. Mm-hmm. I do have a few coming up. They're on my website, LeishaSky.com. Um, and the Trauma Research Foundation has many, many resources, free ones and workshops and training programs. Um, I would start with the resources on the TRF Tuesdays page. Every Tuesday, we do free somatic experiences in the afternoon, and we have a, a very big library of those videos of experiences now. And um, so traumaresearchfoundation.org. Thank you. Thank you. What what an amazing resource. Um, And to be able to go through that whole library, we'll have all of those resources um, linked down in the show notes below. Um, If any of our listeners would like to check it out, which I I highly recommend you do. Um, The Body Keeps the Score is an incredible book as well. Um, Just um, so, so many great opportunities to learn and understand ourselves and ourselves in trauma. Um, Alicia, thank you for joining us and, and thank you to all the listeners for tuning in today. Um, I hope there was a little nugget here that changed and shifted your perspective, gave you a little something to think about, uh, and we will catch you next week for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now, remember the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.